an investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, it's our pleasure to welcome Chris Pitty, president of High Meadows Institute. Chris analyzes and writes about the role of business in today's world and in tomorrow's. While most of us accept our daily interactions with companies like Google, J.P. Morgan Chase, Chris thinks about the fact that these firms and many others have more impact on our day-to-day lives than government. He then analyzes the implications both for those businesses and for society. Prior to High Meadows, Chris held a string of positions where he also looked at business and business leadership from a variety of angles. He was president of the Boston-based Alliance for Business Leadership, a senior fellow at the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program, director of research and policy and executive education at the Boston College Carroll School of Management Center for Corporate Citizenship, and director of the Imagine Program, a Canadian initiative focused on, well, you guessed it, business leadership. Also, before we begin, let me disclose that I am a senior fellow at High Meadows, and with that out of the way, welcome, Chris. Nice to be here, John. So what's your origin story? Where and how did you grow up? We don't need a full resume, but which two or three educational, vocational, or personal experiences stand out? What helped you to become the person you are today? Well, I guess starting with when I was a child, we traveled a lot as a child. I went to school in Hawaii, London, and Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And then when I went to high school, I was sent away from Vancouver to Connecticut to go to a private school, the Choate School in Connecticut. So right from the get-go, I've had kind of an interest in in the world around me because I've had a lot of exposure to different cultures and and sort of different contexts. So I I think part of my early formation, when I went to college, I was intending to go into architecture. Um, And then I discovered architecture was basically engineering and math, which was not my interest. And I decided I would be interested in social architecture, so I focused on political science and trying to understand the power structures and the relationships between business, government, and civil society and the way we govern and manage society. So that's sort of my background. Um, In terms of getting interested in business, I actually started off working in community economic development at the local level with credit unions. I was then in the international development world for quite a while. And was vice president of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. But in that experience, learned that business was increasingly becoming the power that was going to shape the future of the 21st century and became interested in how I could engage with business. And the started with the, I'm a fellow of the, the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturing, and Commerce. And in 1995, they st- did a report called Tomorrow's Company, which was one of the first sort of reports looking at this changing role of business in society. And that really 
piqued my interest, and I, I've spent time with the Tomorrow's Company crowd. And from that, went to the Imagine program in Canada, where we had 600 of the leading companies in the country and the top CEOs in the country in conversation around this changing role of business and society and how we could keep Canada as a competitive country and, and the role of business in it. And from there, you've told my story coming to the States. I want to get to business in high business in a second, but I wasn't aware you traveled so much as, as a child. I thought you'd grown up um, in Canada. What, what caused all the travel? They were sort of extended. My mother was English, so we would go to England and spend extended periods of time with my mother, her grandma, my grandmother, I should say. Um, my father had friends in Hawaii that he'd been in the war with, so we spent time in Hawaii with them. Um, and then we, the sort of extended six months vacation in the Canary Islands um, was that. It was sort of a vacation, right. but. So it wasn't like your father was a, the leading Canadian spy? And no, looking. no, nothing like that. My father ran, ran a, a successful company in Vancouver, towboat company, towing logs down the coast. And I spent a number of my years as an adolescent working on log booms going up and down the coast. I'm sure there's a parallel there somewhere that we will get to, but let's talk about Ibenos instead. Right. You have a very specific view of the role business plays in today's world. Tell us about it. Well, I think, I mean, to put some context on it, I think when you and I grew up, you know, the social contract was clear. The business that business was business. In exchange for taxes, the government took care of the rest. As long as you operated legally, paid your taxes, and gave a little money to philanthropy, you were good. That was the role of business in society. It was summed up by Milton Friedman at the time there's only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities to increase its profits. That was the maxim. And at that time, you know, 80% of world trade was, was done by government and government institutions. 80% of world finance, financial flows were done by governments and international financial institutions, govern, governmental financial institutions. And 80% of Americans thought the Congress is doing a great job. And government was... You know, that was the social contract. Business did business and government took care of the rest. And in that sort of 50 years of change since that time, we should almost reverse the rules. I mean, government is the least trusted institution in our society now. Business is more trusted and seen as more competent and ethical than any other institution in society. The public wants business to take action and to take leadership when government doesn't. And my most trusted person in my, for most Americans now, is their employer. So this is a very different context um, for business, and we've seen a remarkable transformation now. 85% of financial flows are through the markets, financial markets. World trade is dominated by global firms. So it's a very different operating context for yeah. business. So the purpose of High Meadows is try to understand what that means, what the implications of that are for business leadership and responsibility. And what we've discovered is that obviously it's clear to everybody, business is now being expected to be a partner with government in the governance of society. And I mean governance in the broadest sense of the term, ensuring that the welfare of, of citizens is taken care of and social challenges are addressed. And so this is the sort of world we've been exploring with High Metals and what the implications of that are for both corporate executives and in particular corporate boards 
or sort of premise, operating premises, if large firms are now social political institutions that are responsible in, in, in some ways for governance of society, then they need to be governed accordingly. They are political organizations. They need boards that have policy capacity, um, are strategic, and helping the firm navigate its way in society as a social institution. You know, the idea of placing business at the center of society isn't new. It's no. been tried often in the past, and honestly, it didn't work out very well. Company towns were common at the onset of the Industrial Revolution through the early 20th century, and while some certainly tried to create utopian or at least acceptable environments, the more common experience was exploitation. A paycheck never quite covered rent and expenses. Workers were indentured servants for all intents and purposes. They were watched 24 hours a day and forced to live in fenced areas. And just to give you one example, this is uh, courtesy of Steve Rose of The Guardian. Col quote, Colorado code mining towns owned by John D. Rockefeller were policed by armed guards who prevented anyone entering or leaving. Some of the homes didn't have water. Very few had sewage. When the miners went on strike over the conditions in 1913, the National Guard attacked the strikers' tent city on the company's behalf, killing at least 19, including a dozen children, end quote. So what makes you optimistic that powerful 21st century businesses will be more enlightened in how they handle their societal obligations than the powerful 20th century ones? Well, certainly in the OECD countries, um, the reality is the fundamental issues, the accountability mechanisms in society have transformed fundamentally. So the license to operate for business no longer just comes from government. It comes from all its stakeholders. We've seen this stakeholder capitalism conversation now emerging for the last decade. Um, and that's driven by transparency. There, there's no place to hide if you're a large business. You'll be in the social media. You'll be attacked. You'll have consumer boycotts. You'll have investors chasing you. The, so the fundamental change is the accountability mechanisms and the ability of society to hold these firms to account. And as you know, 80% of the reputation of the value of large firms now is intangibles, which is e.g. reputation. So reputation is a key asset that firms have to maintain. And any of those kind of exploited products, as you mentioned, will get you on the first page of the paper in a flash, and you'll have investors dumping out of you. Um, as well as consumers and workers, et cetera. I mean, so it's a very different operating environment. Um, we know that the millennial generation, 40% of them say that I, I will not work for a firm unless I read that the firm has a CEO who has a social purpose. There is a very different kind of culture and operating environment for business now in terms of its ability to attract labor, maintain its license to operate, stay on the good side of consumers. Well, it's interesting because you've pivoted from business impact on society to society's impact on business. So let me ask you about that. Just recently, corporate governance guru Charles Elson argued actually for more silence, not speech, not engagement from companies. He pointed out that companies are getting caught in the crossfire of intense conflicts whether that's what's going on in the Middle East or just the cultural wars in the developed worlds. And it's almost a Friedman-esque vision. Uh, and his point is that fracturing society makes the business environment fraud. A couple of examples, not his, but just that illustrate his point. 
you know, Bud Light obviously faced a consumer boycott from the right over featuring a transgender influencer in the marketing campaign. And from the left, even charities get caught in it. I mean, Susan G. Coleman, anti-breast cancer charity, briefly stopped funding Planned Parenthood in 2012, widely viewed as the charity siding with anti-abortion political forces. And though the decision was later reversed, it cost Coleman some $77 million in contributions and the resignation of the CEO. And, and you don't have to be a big business for a relationship between you and society. Sour. We're reading every day about restaurants or dry cleaners or others that are getting boycotted or supported because of which side they take in the Middle East. I, I know you don't agree because of what you just said, but how does a business responsibly exercise what you're saying is its obligation to society today without getting caught in that crossfire? Well, I think this comes back to having, you know, a competent board that's not responding to issues on a piecemeal basis. So first step is that the company has to have a strategy, understand its sort of political role and where it's going to play. The first step is that you need to ensure that you have a clear definition of corporate purpose and a value statement that's aligned with corporate strategy. So you have a starting place for making decisions. The second thing is you need to do is you need to consult internally with your workforce. You need to consult with your external stakeholders. You have to make a decision. Can you, can you speaking out on this issue really make an impact? And so if those three issues, if two of them are not aligned, in other words, if you can't make an impact or your stakeholders don't agree with you, you, should, you probably should not be speaking out on it. So it has to be aligned with your corporate strategy, but you have to also align it with your corporate political strategy in terms of the lobbying work you're doing in Washington or the state level. So it's congruent because the worst thing you can do is speak out on an issue and find out, in fact, you're part of an industry association or a lobbying effort that's in Washington that's going pushing the issue in the other direction. So it needs a lot more strategic oversight now. Coming back to this issue with the role of boards and in managing, helping to provide guidance to the firm as a political institution and how it plays. So are directors and CEOs trained in comp at least in large companies trained in competence in this? What skills? would they need to respond positively to this, or, or political training for that matter, to respond positively to the societal challenges facing businesses today and tomorrow? Well, they don't teach this in business schools. I'm having taught in the business school, I, you know, when I taught in the business school, I was teaching a course on sustainability, but when I taught it, I was a, was a course on corporate strategy for the 21st century. And the first operating exercise for the students was, what are the different variables in the operating environment that a 21st century firm has to deal with that, that were not there in the 20th century? So this whole dimension of the, managing the political, social role of a business in a large firm in society is something that definitely needs to be taught. And you need to have people on the board who have experience either from the legal side or the public policy side. Um, who can provide insight and, and assist with that process, some independent directors who have that kind of background. And you also have to do training for boards. We've just done a major project with uh, global banks, boards, directors, global banks, 
And it was interesting because I would say out of the people we talked to, lead directors and corporate chairs, about a quarter of them actually understand that there's a, there's a fundamental paradigm shift going on in society. And they, there has to be a mindset shift at the board level in terms of how they see their role and their oversight. In fairness, three quarters are still saying, you know, we're going to wait for policy. Government has to make decisions about these issues. So we're in a, we're in a period of transition. I think certainly the new generation of board leaders coming on understand this and are, are working to operate to this kind of environment. Isn't there sort of a paradox? You started by saying you have to understand the context. Government is not trusted. Most people don't think well of it. Businesses are. And yet you're saying, A, businesses have to become more like government and B, People like lawyers and former government officials would be good board directors. Is it the possibility instead of lifting business up that it just drags business down to the level of, of trust of government? It's a risk, but I, I use the analogy when I'm talking publicly is, you know, so we're in the midst of renegotiating the social contract. It's what we're doing. It's a messy time. Nobody knows who leads, who sets the table for the conversation. And, and how it's going to, in, in the end, transpire. When I'm talking to audiences, one of the questions that I ask them is, how many of you have children? And half the hands in the room go up. How many of you want your children to go work in government? No hands, five hands. So the reality is the institution has got the greatest horsepower in terms of where talent wants to go, where people want to be, and is, is business. That institution whether it likes it or not, has to be accountable to society. And is, there are many mechanisms now by which it will be held accountable to society, including the role of the large institutional investors. Um, Richard Edelman says, as you know from the trust barometer, that if you're a CEO of a global 500 company, you are a global statesman, that term statesman, whether you choose to be or not. That's the operating environment you're working in. So, you briefly, I'm sorry, you briefly mentioned institutional investors. So, do capital markets have to change? What is the role of institutional investors in all this? Well, the, the biggest new variable in our social contract is the rise of institutional investors. You know, between 1914 and 1986, capital markets were pretty tightly controlled by governments. In 1986, with the advent of globalization, financial markets started to be liberalized. Governments stepped away from that role. So now we have the major financial transactions globally being done by the markets. So institutional investors are now being forced into, in, in an interesting kind of way, to play the role of government. One of the ironies is when you see some of the current critique of ESG coming out from the Republicans, I think it was the Ohio Treasurer the other day said this, very clearly, this is, companies should not be taking positions on these issues. This is the business of government. Well, if it's the business of government, why do we have ESG in the first place? So the reason we have ESG in the first place is because of a failure of governance. So civil society and business are trying to negotiate the terms of, of the moving forward to have a sustainable society. And government's the laggard, and certainly in this country. Um, in Europe, there's, there's been a different balance and there's a more active role for government than it has been here to date. But the reality is that businesses have to, to, to maintain their license to operate, continually move forward. And institutional investors are finding themselves, I mean, 
15 years ago, the notion that institutional investors would be, would be engaging with corporate boards and pushing them on social issues would have been pretty inconceivable. Socially responsible investment was confined to a very small niche market of, of do-good boutique firms. Now it's a mainstream issue. And the mainstream issue is because if government doesn't set the rules and institutional investors, beneficiaries are 30 years out, they have to do what they can to ensure the companies they're invested in are going to generate returns for the long term. They're beta investors. They're not buying and trading stocks. They're not alpha players. They want long-term consistent returns. And to do that, the companies have to be operating sustainably. And if government isn't going to set the rules for that, then institutional investors find themselves increasingly engaged on this. You'll remember the, the uh, famous speech by Larry Fink in 2018, where he basically said, we look around, government's not doing its job. The private sector is being asked to step up. We as companies and investors need to take a more active role in ensuring this, the social welfare and, and the health of our operating environment. I mean, who would have thought that the, the head of the largest investor in the institutional investor in the world would be making that kind of a statement? Let's put some specifics on the generalities. What do you see are the two or three major emerging issues in terms of businesses needing to think about how they are affecting society? At a very, very immediate level, it's the systemic issues that we face, climate change, inequality, uh, biodiversity. These are the operating environment sort of limitations we're running up against. So they have to address those issues. But stepping back from it for a minute, there are four key roles that business has to struggle with now. Moral leadership. We talked earlier about speaking out on social issues, but the most trusted issue and competent ethical institutions we have now by public sees are businesses. So if you're the CEO of a large firm, this is an issue you're wrestling with. How do you provide leadership? How far do you go? How do you take positions? So this is a moral leadership challenge. Second is who sets the rules? So are you going to self-regulate yourself? What degree are you going to participate in all these civil society regulations? But you cannot rely on government to set the rules anymore, so you have to be involved in rulemaking in one form or another directly. Third bucket is delivery of, of public goods and services. We face a crisis in numerous aspects in our social service delivery platforms. So what are you as a bit large, if you're a large firm going to do about it? A good example here is IBM. One of the major problems in the education system is the gap between high school and college. And most kids drop out and they don't make it from high school to college. IBM working with in New York with teachers unions, local governments, created a, a what they call P-TECH. It's a grade 9 to 14 high school that gets kids out of school job ready. That model is being replicated now around the country. But business has an enormous role to play in helping to create the kind of innovations needed to more effectively deliver public goods and services and extend the role of government to scale them up. It's an enormously important role for business to play there. And finally, you know, we're coming up to the limits of at every level of climate and biodiversity, and we need a fundamental change in our economic model to a low-carbon model. And business has to be at the forefront of driving that transition. And, you know, investors and business working together are sort of the catalyst around that. And I'm not discounting the role of government. And it's not that government doesn't have a role to play or government has to, you know, is, is obviously the key player. The EEC is setting the benchmarks, but government is following up with 
what is actually transpiring as civil civil society and business initiatives is now being codified by government. So government's role is to bring up and and enforce after leadership has been developed elsewhere in the in society. Let's explore that a little bit. If you had an hour in a private room with the president, the Senate Majority Leader, the Speaker of the House, and the SEC Chair, what suggestions would you have for them? Are there legal reforms that could help businesses navigate their societal roles, or is this all about culture and soft societal norms? I think it's primarily the latter. Um, it, it's a mindset issue, again, as we go through this. I mean, in my experience um, working with government, it's very hard for government just to come to the table and not control the agenda because it's the government. It represents everybody, apparently. So the challenge is how do you create move from a sort of command and control model to enable and have oversight and ensure accountability model? So... It's interesting. I mean, looking at the EEC model, they're not, in many cases, they're not, they're, they're saying that companies on the environmental issues, they have to report, but they're not telling them exactly what they have to report. They're leaving it up to them or biodiversity to report what they, within a, within a scope of standards, what, what exactly is they're, they're doing, what their impact is. So a government's role becomes enable have oversight and support and, and view the private sector as a partner in development and engagement that way, not as a, not as a, 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 you know, an institution that just needs to be controlled through, through regulation. And it's a balance. It's not either or it's, it's what is changing the mindset. You know, I was talking to someone from, um, from Strive, Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, investing house the other day. And, um, she said to me, I'm tired of hearing about the EU. We have better capital markets. We have a more robust economy. Um, um, you look at what the returns to businesses have been in the United States. Why do people keep on citing the EU as an exemplar? What, what's your response to that? Well, I think, you know, a rules-based society is going to innovate more slowly and, um, than a society which is driven by, by markets and free markets. And there's no question that in the, in, in the States, I used to joke with my European counterparts is that it'll be slower to get going in the States, but when it gets going, it will go a lot faster. So once, once the, the wheel tips, things move much more quickly here. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why? I'm very excited in the sense of what's happening with the investment community. I think the institutional investment communities, we're now moving to the next stage, which is really understanding about how do we drive systems change. In our last meeting of our institutional investor group, we've agreed that the next session we'll do is on systems investing. So this issue of moving beyond ESG and really looking at what the impact is, how this all adds up to changing the system is suddenly coming into focus. It's going to be a tough hole. I mean, if we think ESG standards are, are tough, coming up with how we measure effectively systems change will be will be very tough. You know, obviously, work like you, the work you've done, and Steve and Bill and others are sort of creating a path forward on. Steve and Bill being the authors of Twenty uh, First yes. Century Investing, right? Steve Leidenberg and Bill Burkhart. Um Let's finish with some short questions and answers. 
How do you relax? What I like to do is my fishing and sailing are my favorites. Listening to jazz occasionally. I was going to ask what music do you listen to, so I'll ask what type of jazz do you listen to? Um, I like Keith Jarrett. And I like The Weeknd when my daughter's in town. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book on governance, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Let's see if I can dig it up here. The Evolution of Corporate Governance by Bob Chicker, which is a textbook, uh, which has been updated a number of times. And what's interesting about his c- conclusion is, while develops, developments in the law and economics will undoubtedly continue, major future contributions to corporate governance are likely to come from the behavioral sciences, political science, and ethics. Psychology and belief systems of those involved in governance activities, the attitudes, behaviors, and political maneuverings during and outside meetings and the ethical implications of corporate decisions are not well understood. So this is the next frontier, I think, for understanding what the real role of governance is of institutions that are having massive power in society. As we are recording this in uh, right before Thanksgiving 2023, I think we just saw an example of that at OpenAI. So we'll uh, not delve into that, but it's a good example. Right. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Someplace warm. Tenerife or the Azores. I've been in that corner of the world before. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Well, my wife would say this is too soft, but I would say appreciate what you have, be of service to others, and live your life to the fullest. Why is that too soft? She thinks I should be telling the people to recycle, reuse, and cut back their consumption because we have a climate crisis. Fair enough. I think if we do both those things, we'll be, uh, we'll be doing well. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Chris Finney. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, John. It's great to do it. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcast, please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.